0: Keep your place right there in the passage. We'll be looking at this in a moment. Let's pray together. Lord, we know your word is living and active. It's sharper than any other double edged sword. It penetrates. It divides and i pray it would do that work in our hearts this morning with great precision touching those areas of our lives that need to be spoken to I pray in jesus name amen a family owned this hamster that they affectionately called hammy hammy lives in his little cage Hammy has a warm nest of cedar shavings to curl up in, a water bottle to drink from, and best of all, a wheel that he can run inside of. He has everything a hamster could ever want or needs. But Hammy refused to run inside his running wheel. Instead, he has come up with what he thinks is a better idea. Hammy climbs up on top of the wheel, outside of the wheel, and turns over on his back on top of the wheel and stretches out. Gradually, the wheel starts to turn, and and Hammy's entire body rolls with it, head first. The wheel picks up speed and spins faster and faster until clunk, Hammy's head smacks on the bottom of the cage. Hammy gets up, he shakes himself, apparently hurt from the unexpected sharp blow to his head. What does Hammy do next? Well, he climbs back up on top of the wheel, turns over, he stretches himself out again and does the same exact thing. The wheel picks up speed and spins faster and faster until clunk, Hammy's head smacks once again on the bottom of the cage. Why? Why would a hamster that has everything he needs disregard the wheel's proper use and do something that only hurts himself? And why, even after that, would he do it again? The bigger question is, why would we, who are supposedly smarter than hamsters, sometimes do the same thing? Why would we disregard all that God has given us and instead do things our way and settle for far less than God ever attended for our lives? What did Einstein say is the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And yet we continue to climb outside of God's wheel of desires for us and spin and spin on top of the wheel trying to find satisfaction and we keep crashing. That brings us to our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. I love this book. As I stated last week, my reason for choosing this study as we begin a new year together is because of my deep desire for you as well as for my own life to not settle for a subnormal Christianity. I said it last week, but it bears repeating. I am concerned that evangelical Christians throughout this nation have been more than okay with a mediocre faith. I am concerned for believers everywhere who have come to accept a life pattern of defeat and joylessness as normal. I remind you, God did not call me to this church as your pastor to maintain status quo. So join me in fighting through the nothingness of this life and fighting against going through the motions, as the overplayed song goes. The beautiful thing about the book of Ecclesiastes is that it understands us. This study's been chosen in order to get us all on the same page of finding and living for what really matters in life. This study puts a spotlight on our worldview and our pursuits in life. Now, very rarely will I even mention to you to pick up one of my previous sermons on CD or go online to listen. You'll very rarely hear me do that. But for the sake of continuity and for the sake of of wanting you to hear my heart and vision for you, I would encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. I would invite you also to listen to Ricky's sermon the previous week as it not only was it outstanding as it stood on its own, but it also addresses this very same issue, really, of not settling for subnormal Christian life, lukewarmness. We don't want that. God doesn't want it. If there's one thing that I had hoped you took away with you last week and serves as an underlying theme for this entire series, it is this. If God isn't in it, it isn't worth it. If God isn't in it, it isn't worth it. Now, perhaps that just might become our theme for this year. To live apart from God, which is an under-the-sun worldview, we discover life to be nothing but maddening and frustrating, like lining up the colors on this Rubik's Cube. I can't do it. What a picture of man's attempt at trying to put the pieces of his life together. What a visual of trying to make life work when God isn't in it. It's downright frustrating and absolutely maddening. Satisfaction can't be found. We turn our attention today to the second chapter of Ecclesiastes. Look there with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And in essence, the question Solomon puts out there is this: What will it take to make you happy? I will be happy when. Fill in the blank. I will be happy when? I will be happy when I get out of high school. I will be happy when I can just get out of this house from my parents. And your parents say, I will be happy when my kids leave. <laughs> I will be happy when my kids get their act together. I will be happy when I get a better paying job. I will be happy when I have kids of my own. I will be happy when. I believe it is safe to assume that everyone is passionately engaged in the pursuit of something. Everyone is passionately engaged in the pursuit of something. The question is, is it trivial and temporary, or is it significant and lasting? Solomon lived his life as an experiment for us. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. Solomon says, verse 1, I thought in my heart, or I said to myself, he's talking to himself now, He doesn't look to God's counsel or to some godly advice of others. He talks only to himself, and he makes the decision to play hard. He says to himself, look what he says, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Solomon is now going to scratch some itches in the pleasure zone. The possibilities for sensual pleasure were endless in Solomon's world. They were endless. And he first turns to laughter, he says in verse 2. He turns to laughter. He goes to the comedy clubs. He watches sitcoms. He tries to amuse himself with things that make him laugh. But that proves to be foolish and that it cannot bring him any kind of real meaning in life. I mean, laughter is good. Doesn't Solomon elsewhere say a cheerful heart is good medicine? I love to laugh. We need to laugh. But it can't solve your problems. There was this uh, disturbed and troubled man who awoke melancholy every single morning, and he went to bed at night deeply depressed. His day was marked by darkness and clouds. He couldn't find relief for his anxiety. In his desperate condition, he decided to seek the counsel of a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist listened to him for nearly an hour. And finally, the psychiatrist leaned toward his patient, and he said to him, You know... I heard that there's this local show at the theater. I understand a very funny comedian has come into our sitting, and he's leaving people in stitches with laughter. He's getting great reviews from the critics. Maybe he's the one who will bring back your happiness. Why don't you just go see this professional comedian and laugh your troubles away? And the patient muttered, Doctor, I am that comedian. <laughs> Can we laugh our troubles away? Solomon says that's not the answer. The pursuit of pleasure and amusements won't cut it. Well, if laughter can't bring you happiness, then how about the bottle? Solomon turns to the bottle next. He says in verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine. Now, don't picture here a drunk in a dark alley but rather one who's trying to heighten all his experiences. Solomon's mind is still being guided by wisdom. He says that at the end of verse 3. This is a controlled, thought-through experiment. He's looking to alcohol to lift him out of his emptiness. Sing me a song, piano man. Sing me a song tonight. We're sharing a drink we call loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. Right? That's how it goes. Many people's drug of choice is alcohol to mask the loneliness and pain of their soul. The pursuit is trivial, it's meaningless, it's insignificant because it does not address the matters below the waterline. So after cheering himself with wine and embracing folly, it says in verse 2, meaning all kinds of questionable activity, Solomon turns to personal projects. So he builds, he makes, he buys, he owns, he works. I will be happy when? I will be happy when I own that summer home. I will be happy when I own that piece of land. I will be happy when I build that bigger church, when I finish that project. That is what will make me happy, truly happy. And in verses 4 through 8, we find a phrase that stands out like a sore thumb. Six. Times and five verses, we find two words that show Solomon's motivation in these personal projects. It's really clearer in the original than what you have in front of you. But it reads something like this. Follow along in verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. And I planted vineyards for myself. I made for myself gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Look at verse 6. I made for myself reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Go down to verse 8. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired for myself men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. Do you get the picture as to who all this is for? Himself. Let's be honest. Are the longer hours at work really for yourself? Are you killing yourself with jumping from one project to the next because in them you're looking for some kind of fulfillment that fills the ache inside or gives you some kind of sense of significance? Is the building of that ministry for yourself? Is the time spent helping someone else for strokes for yourself? He'd you be honest. There was this man who had this bad cough, and his self-diagnosis was lung cancer. And so he realizes that life is short, so he plays hard. He lives it up. He takes piano lessons and cooking lessons. He reads books. He hires a personal trainer. He goes to flight school, and he takes in all the entertainment possible. He denied himself nothing. One day he fills in his wife about his cough and that he diagnosed himself with lung cancer. She tells him, to go get a second opinion. He goes to the doctor and he gets the second opinion. He finds out it isn't lung cancer at all. It's only allergies. So he gives up all the lessons. He gets rid of his personal trainer. He lightens his intake of amusements. He goes to bed one night very, very troubled. Even more troubled than when he thought he was dying. He was disturbed that when he thought that life was short that he did not even consider helping others. With his brush of death he embarked on a mad self-binge. He said to his wife, my thought of death only pushed me further into myself. Are we finding the answers within ourselves? Go find yourself. What is that? I find myself, I'm in Florida. (laughs) It's warm. You see, we can't even talk about living for what really matters until we come to grips with our raging passion for ourselves. Everyone is passionately engaged in the pursuit of something. Solomon tried laughter, he pursued wine, he gave himself to projects, he had all the stuff, and he was indeed the epitome of a pleasure seeker. He says in verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, I refused my heart no pleasure. Oh, how that describes life in America. Life the American way could be reduced to five words. It only has five syllables, just two sentences, only 19 letters. I saw it all summed up on a bumper sticker. The five words are, life is short, play hard. Sums it up, American dream. And sure, we sure are playing hard. We have all the stuff. The more we have what we want, the more we want what we don't have. So we buy stuff that we don't need with money that we don't have to impress people we don't even like. And then as the bumper stickers puts it, I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go. I said it before, if happiness is to be found in pleasures, then we as a nation ought to be deliriously happy. Are Americans happy? What nation would you guess have the happiest citizens? According to one report on CNN, an analysis of more than 65 countries shows that the highest happiness index was Nigeria. Mexico was second, Venezuela was third, and then El Salvador and Puerto Rico followed. The United States came in 16th. Australia and Great Britain were 20th and 24th, respectively. It should be of no surprise, really, but happiness has little to do with wealth or income. The researchers made this conclusion in the report. They said, survey after survey has shown that the desire for material goods, which has increased hand-in-hand with average income, is a happiness suppressant. Incidentally, there was another national survey of citizens' happiness according to the state they lived in. The happiness ratings were based on a survey of 1.3 million people in the nation, which included the question of asking people just how satisfied they are. I'm sorry to report that New York State came in last place. 51st of 51 states, if you include District of Columbia. The state of Maine was 10th. <laughs> Folks, that's a lot of happiness I lost in one move. But with Paul, but with Paul, I say, I have learned to be content in whatever state I am in. Right? Right? <laughs> Solomon was spinning on top of the wheel, trying to find meaning and satisfaction and pleasures. Look at Solomon's conclusion in verse 11. He says, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Now where do we go with all this? What we conclude? What we are to conclude about all our trivial pursuits, what is the final word about pleasures? The challenge for us this morning from this passage may be different than what you would expect. Some preacher's conclusion to this sermon might go something like this. Abstain from pleasures. Don't drink, don't engage in worldly entertainment. It is fu- if it's fun, watch out. I think that misses the point. Some might conclude that what we need are more rules. Sometime, look at Colossians 3 20 through 23. Jot it down Colossians 3 20 through 23 as addresses whole subject of rules. Does it do anything to, to curb the, the sensual indulgence that we have? No, it doesn't. Listen, establishing rules for everything won't lift our spiritual life above subnormal living. I would argue, on the contrary, it exasperates the problem. The world says it is happiness by addition. More alcohol, more sex, more comedy shows, more money, more, more, more. The church comes along and says, oh, no, 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 it's happiness by subtraction. Don't laugh, don't drink, don't have money, don't have fun. So what happens is, Christians then bounce back and forth from living like the world and finding that's not cutting it, and then back to the church and finding it lifeless, irrelevant, boring, and lethargic. I'll be honest, that was my view as a child growing up. If it was fun, God came along, this cosmic killjoy came along and he squashed it. We have been touched by the supernatural power of God, and that should bring color to our black and white worlds. It was like when I first put on my my glasses as a fifth grader. I saw the blueness of sky like I never saw before. Life went from blurry to crisp, clear, and enjoyment of some of the finer aspects of God's beautiful creation. I was missing it. We can read what Solomon writes and we can miss the point. The goal of all this is not morality. Morality. The goal of all this is not more rules. God says, enjoy creation, enjoy my gifts, enjoy my pleasures. In Psalm sixteen, eleven, God speaks of the eternal pleasures that are at his right hands. And 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, I don't know if we've cut this out of our Bible or not, but it says, after there's a warning, and there is, to those who are rich not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, It goes on to say in 1 Timothy 6.17 that we ought to put our hope in God, get this, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In here, says it. Earlier in the same book written to Timothy, God through Paul says, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That's how we're to receive it. Because it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Ecclesiastes two twenty four, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Verse 25. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. And C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, we find this conversation between two devils. Screwtape, the senior fiend, says to his nephew Wormwood, okay, the devil, about God. He says this, he's a hedonist at heart. He makes no secret about it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He has filled his world with pleasures. This is about God. The devils are saying this about God. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. He then says this, catch this. He says, everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. Was the devil speaking. So I ask, when does our pleasure become twisted? I suggest four things to you. There ways that we can twist what God has said is good. First of all, we can twist what God has said is good, and twist pleasures when we forget that all pleasure is a gift from God. We twist it when we forget that. Secondly, we twist our pleasures that God has given to us when it becomes a pursuit instead of something received. Derek, Derek Kidner said it this way. He said, What spoils the pleasures of life for us is our hunger to get out of them more than they can ever deliver. Getting eternal and ultimate meaning out of temporal and temporary pursuits is destined to fail. Thirdly, we twist pleasures when we consider that pleasure as a right, our entitlements. There's none of that going on in America, right? Fourthly, they are twisted also when they are overindulged. We ruin a good thing by overindulging in it. We then lose the joyful freedom of enjoying it, and instead it becomes a noose around our necks. Quite frankly, we are too lazy when it comes to the pleasures of God. I don't think we shoot high enough. C.S. Lewis is right. He said, we are far too easily pleased. We are so willing to settle for such pitiful pleasures. We could laugh. We settle for coarse joking. We could live forgiven. We settle for works righteousness. We could enjoy powerful intimacy with our spouse. We settle for superficial, careless fun. We could have a feast. We settle for gluttony. We could have a celebration. We settle for drunkenness. We could worship. We settle for religious activities. We settle for far less than God wants to give us, and we are lazy when it comes to the pleasures of God. We simply mimic and try to duplicate what others are doing, and we merely try to live off of others' excitement. We settle for some formula that someone puts down in a book rather than pursue God for ourselves, and we come up empty. So like Solomon, we go outside the wheel, and we play hard. We chase pleasures and comedy shows and alcohol and projects and accomplishments, money, women, work, and all this seems more exciting than pursuing Christ as a consuming, controlling passion in our lives. I mean, why is it that our desire for solutions to problems is so much stronger than our desire for God? Why is it that we have lost our appetite for the good things that God has designed for us to enjoy? I agree with Larry Crabb, who aptly said, The core problem with most of us is not that we are too passionate about bad things, but that we are not passionate enough about good things. I said it earlier, everything, everyone is passionately engaged in the pursuit of something. Is it trivial or meaningful? What flame are you fanning? What are your trivial pursuits? God calls us to repent of those lesser and trivial pursuits and find our satisfaction in Him. It can be done. On a scale of 1 to 10, how satisfied are you in God right now? We will find pleasure in God to the degree we want to find Him. If you walk away from this sermon today with a deeper passion and urgency to know him and to enjoy him, then you have connected with this message. Even if you feel a little overwhelmed with the sheer impossibility of acting on that passion on your own, then the Spirit of God is using this message in your life. Linger there. Stay there. Let God do something. Let it drive you to Christ who stirs passion within us that is stronger than all other passions. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for my own life. Don't miss seeing all that God wants us to enjoy. A group of art students went on a field trip to a spot in the field where the sunset could be best viewed. I mean, it was spectacular. Sunset blazed across the hill in lovely pinks and reds and oranges and yellows. The art teacher then instructed his students to paint as fast as possible to capture all the beauty that the sunset was portraying. As that the art teacher made his way around to look at some of the paintings, he came across this young man who was painting away. Upon a closer examination, the teacher noticed that this young man was painting the shingles on the barn at the foot of the hill. There before him was a gorgeous sunset filling the entire sky, yet on his canvas, all he had were the shingles of a rundown barn. Forget the shingles, cried the teacher. They're just details. Paint the sunsets. Majoring on shingles leaves us bored. Trivial pursuits only twist pleasures. I will be happy when the deepest and most satisfying happiness is found in God. God is gloriously all-satisfying. See the sunset. Take it all in. Feast on Him. Let's pray. Lord, Forgive me for my trivial pursuits. Forgive me for my passion that's not strong enough for good things for you. And I pray that you would intensify that passion. In my life, and each person here. That we truly enjoy the pleasures at your right hand that you want to give us Because we know they're from you. And because we're finding our satisfaction, not in that pleasure, but in you ultimately. May we pursue you hard. And not settle. I pray in Jesus' name.